The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Inflation is still too high, and further rate hikes are still in play. Jay Powell's rather hawkish tone causing stocks to reverse course several times today. But it shouldn't give you cause for concern, our market guest says. She gives Powell's speech an A and says it works well with what she's buying. She joins us ahead with the sectors and the names. Plus, a 1% down payment on a home. What could possibly go wrong? We'll ask the chief economist at Zillow Home Loans because they are now offering this option to address the affordability crisis. And from ketchup to hand sanitizers and beauty products, chances are you use a product this company provides packaging for. But there's one thing they package that caught our attention in the latest earnings report and may set them up nicely from here. Let's see if you can guess what it is. It's not a mystery chart. It's a mystery product today, Dom. I don't know Uh, what it is. That's a great tease, by the way. But in the meantime, how are the markets? The markets are actually positive, but we've seen both sides of the market so far today, Kelly. So if you take a look at what's happening overall, the S&P 500 is at 4,393, so still below the 4,400 mark. But on the day, we're up 17 points, roughly one half of 1%. At the highs of the session, we were up actually 40 points, so significantly stronger here. We were actually down as much as 20 so far today. The Dow Industrial is up about a similar percentage amount, one half of 1%, 176 points, 34,275. The Nasdaq Composite up about one third of 1%, the laggard if you want to call it that, 13,514, spot 89, up about 50 points right now. So again, both sides of the you know, unchanged we've seen so far today, but generally a little bit more positive, fractionally so. If you take a look at the interest rate complex, that's been the focus today, uh, given Fed Chair Jay Powell's speech at the Jackson Hole Symposium. Maybe more hawkish. Some people are interpreting it different ways. No matter what, we have seen upward pressure on yields, downward pressure on prices. The two-year note yield currently up to a back above 5, 5.05%. The 10-year note yield, 4.24%. It got as high as about 4.2728-ish at one point today. There's been a lot more focus on that 10-year note yield, uh, given all the conversations around what the neutral rate or natural rate of interest should be on a short-term basis, that so-called R-star. A lot of people point towards that 10-year note as maybe a proxy for that kind of a level. So we're watching that pretty closely there. So keep an eye on rates. And then interest rate sensitivity. It used to basically be utilities and staples, maybe real estate in there, but we've expanded it because so many more parts of the market are interest rate sensitive. Next era on the utility side, Kraft Heinz, both clinging on to gains right now. Meanwhile, banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, just about flat on the session. NVIDIA, you might call it interest rate sensitive, hyper growth. Sometimes those interest rates play out there. NVIDIA that is now down 3.5% of the day, which means it's about 10% below its post-earnings high at this point, and the ARK Innovation ETF about 1% as well. So keep an eye on those various parts of the market. Very closely watched with regard to how Fed policy is going to shape up. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. We start with Fed Chair Jerome Powell's big speech in Jackson Hole. He maintained his somewhat hawkish stance, saying he's still open to further rate hikes to combat inflation if needed. Take a listen. Although inflation has moved down from its peak, a welcome development, it remains too high. 
We are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably down toward our objective. Let's get some reaction now from Gus Fauché. He's chief economist at PNC and Aditya Bave, a senior U.S. economist at Bank of America. Welcome to both of you. Gus, I'll start with you. And Nick Timrose at The Journal described this as more of a risk management speech. So was it hawkish? Was it dovish? Was it wait and see? What do you think? I think he struck a hawkish tone, but that it, the content wasn't quite as hawkish as, as the way that he said it. Uh, he made it clear that the Fed is ra- ready to raise rates again if necessary, but he didn't say that a rate hike was forthcoming necessarily. So I think he's taking a risk management approach where he's saying we're more likely to raise rates than uh, lower them, but he's setting the market up in case they do need to raise rates again. And going into this speech, Aditya, the futures market was already pricing in almost a half percent uh, or a 50-50 chance that they raise again in November. Is that in your expectation? Uh, I, I think sorry, we're yes, likely we have to them hiking. Go ahead, Aditya. Yes, so we have them hiking uh, 25 basis points in November, and we have them cutting just 75 basis points next year, and markets move towards both of those forecasts. But I actually agree that the comments were fairly balanced. They had both hawkish and dovish elements to them, and so ultimately he presented a Rorschach test to investors, and that's exactly what you're seeing in market action today. One of the areas that he talked about was the labor market. I want to play a little bit of what he said about the type of those dynamics and the impact that may have on further hikes. Take a listen. So far, job openings have declined substantially without increasing unemployment, a highly welcome but historically unusual result that appears to reflect large excess demand for labor. In addition, there is evidence that inflation has become more responsive to labor market tightness than was the case in recent decades. These changing dynamics may or may not persist, and this uncertainty underscores the need for agile policymaking. Gus, what does he mean by that, that the labor market has become more responsive to tightness than in recent decades? Uh, What he's saying is is that strong wage growth, a tight labor market, is pushing overall inflation higher. As the economy has become more services dependent, uh, strong wages are more likely to show up in inflation, which is what we're seeing. And so, therefore, the Fed may need to push back a little bit harder against that tight labor market in order to get inflation to that 2% objective. Would that, Aditya, be part of an argument for this being a rather hawkish speech, if not so much today, maybe in retrospect, if they do have to lean harder against the labor market. Right. I think it's a little bit nuanced because if inflation is more responsive to a tight labor market, then hopefully that works the other way around as well. To me, essentially, what he's saying is that we finally found the steep part of the Phillips curve after being on the very flat part of the Phillips curve for over a decade. And that cuts both ways. So so, so hopefully when the labor market does ease up and we're seeing some signs of that, inflation should continue to cool relatively fast. That would be the hope for the Fed. Yeah, we also got uh, the universal Michigan data this morning, consumer sentiment. Uh, I think it was down a little bit. Yes, yeah, 69.5 uh, in August. But notably, inflation expectations are still higher than they used to be. Aditya, 3.3%, let's call it, with a little bit of a rebound in gasoline prices lately. Is this a data point you think they'll be concerned about? I think the one-year inflation expectations figure was always going to go up with, as you said, the rebound in gasoline prices. 3% on the 10-year is pretty much fine. It's, it's, as you mentioned, a little bit towards the high end of the recent range, but we haven't really broken outside that range, and so for now they're pretty comfortable with that.
All right. Gus, where do we go from here? I think we see the Fed holding steady. I think you saw President Harker and President Collins yesterday saying that they didn't think further rate hikes would be necessary. Uh, I think we will see a slowing in the labor market. We're likely to get a mild recession starting in early 2024 that will bring inflation back down to 2%. So we see the Fed holding steady in the near term and then cutting sometime in the, the late winter, early spring next year. So do you think is the message you're getting from them that they don't know any, you know, that that's your forecast, but they don't they don't sound to me like they're particularly wedded to any forecast that they're just kind of waiting like the rest of us to see how the data come in. Gus, would you say that's right? Yes. And I think Chair Powell made that clear. He said, you know, look, we've gotten two good months of news on inflation, but we aren't sure that that's going to last. And they're going to be looking at the inflation data. They're going to be looking at the labor market. They're going to be looking for those slowings that they're expecting. And if they don't see them, then they're perfectly willing to raise rates again if that's what it takes. And uh, before we go, Adia, just can you put some context around these high numbers we're getting for the third quarter from the Atlanta Fed? And not so much to get into whether they're any better than anyone else, but how strong could third quarter GDP be? How different might it look by the fourth quarter, first quarter of next year? Right. So we're tracking 2.7 percent for the third quarter. The Atlanta Fed, of course, is closer to 6 percent. There's different elements to these forecasts. But the point is that we started at 2 percent and very quickly with the early wave of July data, we've gone to 2.7. I think we'll probably see a softer consumer in August and September just because the strength in July was so outsized. And that could set you up for a less favorable base effect for the first uh, quarter of next year as well as the fourth quarter of this year. So we have a slowdown in growth to around the one and a half, one percent mark later this year, but we don't actually have a recession in the forecast either this year or next year. All right, for that, I, I, I remember talking to uh, to Gaben about that for sure. We'll let you guys go, Gus. What happened? Was it your elbow, tennis elbow? Uh, I broke my shoulder on vacation. Oh my gosh! Oh well, thank you for joining us. Regardless, we wish you a speedy recovery. Thanks, <laughs> Gus Fauche from PNC and Aditya Bave. Well, she gave Powell an A, and now she's going to give us the play. And that involves looking for companies that may be struggling right now, but are well positioned to outperform their peers long term. Let's bring in Kim Forrest now. She's founder and CIO of Boca Capital Partners. You give him an A, Kim. What did you hear this morning that you liked? I do. I heard what I've always heard from Jay Powell, which is um, we are data driven and we are going to adjust the interest rates according to the data. And that's pretty much what he reiterated during his whole speech. Now, I think he also reiterated the data that the rest of us are seeing, and that's retail consumers and investors alike, that the inflation rate has dropped, but it's not to the 2 percent that um, the Fed wants to have and that they're going to continue to evaluate um, both the labor economy and the regular economy and take action. Like, this is what Powell wants, is consistent messaging and a predictable outcome. And I think that that is why I gave him an A, because he is giving us the guidelines that they use to make decisions. All right. And I ask you about that, even though I really should be asking you about your, your sweet spot here. Semis, that's all, that's, that's all that matters. That's the whole game. And I mean, do you look at NVIDIA and think it's practically a value stock? Because uh, the, the PE now, well, the PE in February must have been like four now, based on what we know now. Yes. Well, maybe. Um, you know, I don't think anything with three digits is a value stock in the PE. I'm sorry. I don't generally hold fast to um, 
I, I'm more of a relative kind of uh, data person ab rather than an absolute number. But NVIDIA is richly valued any way you look at it. But here's the good uh, part. They do, they are in demand. They are ahead of the curve from anybody else with respect to AI and other glamorous areas of the semiconductor market. But we need them. We need productivity. So, uh, semis give us productivity. And the other thing is, AI is not just a passing fancy. It is going to deliver productivity and maybe entertainment. But what it really needs is lots and lots of data. So I know that for a fact. I used to be a software engineer in AI, and data is the key to successful math modeling. So I don't know that we can ever have enough um, storage. So that's why I like Micron and other developers or uh, yeah. makers of NAND technology. And uh, I just don't think uh, semis are ever going to go out of fashion ever again. A lot ever. more favorability for Micron lately. NetApp, another one you like. Um, 30 times is the multiple for NVIDIA. 30. 30. Okay. I, can we show Coke, Tori? Put like a Coke or um, a Pepsi or a Clorox or somebody like that on the screen. I mean... Kim, you can get NVIDIA at 30 times after everything that's... <laughs> Coke's at 23. Which would you rather own? Right, but here's the thing. They are not alone in making new um, chips. And it's going to be really hard with um, AI driving this. Everybody else in the semi-space is going to want to catch up to them. And I don't know that they are that far ahead that they can evade having competition. That's pretty much that. All right. Fair enough. And, and as I've said, you know it better than anybody. Where else? So you want to buy companies right now that you think might offer some value, but more importantly, are going to outperform in the long run. Who, who else fits that description? Sure. Well, um, back in Semiland, we really like Synopsys because they help people design chips. But also we're looking in other sectors. I know. I know there are other sectors <laughs> other than technology. But um, we actually like consumer discretionary because it's really unloved at this point. Um, and there are great retailers out there. And we think financials are worth a look because we are at the end or near the very end of the rate hike cycle. Hmm. And we're not in the position where we were last year at this time where we didn't know where that number was going to be, that 10-year number. So... We're very close to the end, if not at the end. And I think financials deserve a good hard look. Hmm. But again, you have to really do tons of homework there not to get caught out by somebody that might have a bad balance sheet or bad assets on their balance sheet. Right. And most people feel like that's just over their head trying to figure that out. Although I notice a firm, um, you know, it's techie financial, but uh, having quite a strong session today. Would you go, you know, big banks, regionals, like it truly just depends. Any any criteria in particular that you, you would be screening for? Well, actually, I really like both um, uh, companies in uh, the regional area, but again, companies that don't have any or very much exposure to commercial real estate, specifically offices. And then there are good large players that you can take a look at. Again, we like um, Morgan Stanley is one of those mm -hmm. that don't do a whole lot of lending, but do have a lot of fees. And we like hometown favorite PNC, again, because they have a whole lot of their uh, 
uh, revenue generated by fees as opposed to lending. We just had Gus Fauche, their chief economist, last segment. Interestingly enough, PNC 25 percent decline year to date, but even Morgan Stanley's in the red now. I didn't realize how much weakness we've seen over the past month. So maybe a chance to be opportunistic. Kim, thanks so much for your time, as always. Thank you. Kim Forrest joining us from Boca Capital Partners. Coming up from China to beauty to pharma, even food. My next guest company is uniquely positioned to give insight into all of those areas with products that they make. The CEO of Aptar Group joins us live with where they see strength and where they don't right now. Plus, as Instacart readies its IPO, we look at how the economics are evolving for the grocery delivery business and whether this move will more fully open the IPO market. As we head to break, here's a broad look at the markets, which have really made a comeback. Uh, Dow's up 185 or half a percent, and it's actually leading the way today. The Russell 2000's up a quarter percent. The 10-year note hovering around 424. We're back after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. I mentioned the Dow outperforming today, and here's a reason why. Boeing moving higher and up almost 2% right now on reports that it's getting ready to restart 737 MAX deliveries to China after about four years. Uh, again, Boeing, which had been hit earlier in this week by some delays on the 737 MAX, now benefiting from some positive news flow as it specifically relates to China orders. Shares are up 2%. Dow's up 154 now. Meantime, joining me now is, uh, well, let's back up for a second and talk about packaging. It's a part of the industry that you don't hear about that much. But this is a company we spoke with during the pandemic when they were making packaging for all of those hand sanitizers we were buying. We checked in with them last year and they told us about the labor shortages they were experiencing. And now they're seeing strength in one part of the market in particular that makes sense if you think about it. It's weight loss drugs. That's right. Joining me now is the company in the midst of all of it and their CEO, Stephen Tanda, the CEO of Aptar Group, whose shares are starting to approach their 2021 highs, by the way. Stephen, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks for having me back, Kelly. Great so to be here. Tell me, do you guys make some of the packaging for uh, injectable diabetes and weight loss drugs? Well, we, we can't talk about uh, any specific customers, but uh, what I can tell you is that, indeed, uh, we supply elastomeric components for three of the GLP drugs uh, that are on the market, and clearly um, consumers are very excited about it, patients and our customers are very excited about it, uh, securing future supply, investing. We ourselves invest uh, more than 180 million in our own capacity 
for biologic drugs, including GLP-1 drugs. Wow. I mean, you guys, I think about your business the last couple of years and you had to go, you know, okay, go quickly make tons of hand sanitizer. Okay, now pull back on that. Okay, now go quickly make tons of supplies for the GLP drug. I mean, how, how do you, how does your business respond to all of this? Well, we've really been around for almost uh, 80 years, public is, uh, for 30 years. So um, we really are, if you want the intel inside, uh, all of your viewers have a dozen of our product at home from spray on sunscreen to upside down ketchup to high end fragrances and also unfortunately Narcan. So it's all about delivering medicine, delivering consumer products to the consumer in a way uh, that makes brands more enjoyable and the drugs more available. Yeah, the upside down ketchup might be the single greatest uh, innovation. <laughs> makes makes my family life a little easier. Um, but put that in context for us. So huge demand, for instance, in this uh, weight loss category. Where else are things softer now? Because we know consumer goods and durable goods more, well, not that they're durable goods, but that this is an area of softness lately. Yeah, actually, overall demand for, for our products is very strong. Uh, the pharma business, whether it's nasal sprays for allergies or, or inhalers or uh, sinus uh, rinses. So anything the consumer has learned during the pandemic uh, about uh, keeping their sinus passages clear has really changed the consumer behavior. Our beauty business is actually very strong because of pickup of travel retail. The one area where we see weakness is in the U.S., food space and personal care and home care. Partly that's because, uh, you know, patterns have changed uh, coming out of the pandemic. And part of it is our customers and retailers still working down their tremendous uh, COVID inventories. That's interesting. So in personal care and home sort of things in particular, and that echoes what we've heard from other companies in that business. How you think you have another year or so to normalize things there? Well, we, we see food starting to normalize. Uh, we believe personal care, home care probably will run their course by the end of the year, early next year. Thankfully, I don't say it as often, uh, our business is uh, 75% outside of the U.S. <laughs> and uh, travel retail really, especially between U.S. and Europe, is, is boomed in uh, driving our beauty business, high-end fragrances, makeup, skin care. Uh, and of course, um, pharma is uh, global and uh, the U.S. Uh, patients and U.S. consumers need the pharma products, whether the economy is doing well or not. That's fascinating. You guys really do have a, a really unique one. And like you said, it's not often you say it's a good thing. We're 75 percent outside of the U.S. What about China? Any exposure there or any kind of secondhand exposure that could tell us what's going on with trends there? No, China is an important market for us, uh, you know, uh, for some of our segments, like beauty. It's actually the largest uh, mar beauty market in the world. Wow. And a lot of the, the sales that we report in Europe are really going to global beauty brands like L'Oreal or LVMH, who then sell their products on to China. Clearly, the recovery is more muted than uh, people had hoped and expected, but even uh, lower growth on a large base uh, makes a big difference. And uh, uh, we have start, just started up uh, one of our flagship investments in Suzhou, China, and opened two plants in the north uh, in the dairy area during the pandemic. So we continue to be uh, see China as an important market, and thankfully we are not in any geopolitically sensitive areas. So we're right. seen as benefiting the Chinese patients and consumers. Yeah, so far makeup is not on the list uh, yet of, uh, of highly sensitive industries. Um, before I let you go, can you talk to just briefly about the labor force? I, I have to imagine between some of the slowdowns you've cited and everything else that you're not seeing the same staffing challenges you once had, but um, is there any sign of 
kind of wages reversing lower or anything like that? No, but uh, clearly the issues uh, we talked about last time have abated. We saw more people joining the labor force. And those plants, particularly in the Midwest, are exactly the ones producing the things that are weaker, personal care, home care. Uh, so this is no longer an issue. And thankfully, in the booming areas like pharma, we have plenty of capacity. You never want to be out of Narcan. Oh, my gosh, that's for sure. Uh, Stefan, thanks so much for rejoining us. It's really good to check in with you. Great to check up with you, Kelly. Stefan Tanda is the CEO of Aptar Group. Shares are up 15% this year. And coming up, shares of this company are making some big moves this month, prompting two upgrades just this week. The name and the reasons for those calls ahead. Plus, Zillow Home Loans making a move that's supposed to make homeownership more affordable, but it's also drawing some comparisons to what happened before the mortgage crisis. Those details are coming up. As we head to break, here's the Dow heat map with two to three gainers versus decliners today, led, I believe, by Boeing, whose shares are up 2% on that news we brought you top of the hour. On the flip side of things, the financials are weak. American Express, Goldman, J.P. Morgan, your biggest decliners. We're back after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson. With your CNBC News update, former President Trump and all 18 co-defendants have met the noon deadline today to surrender to authorities in Fulton County, Georgia. All but one were released on bond after being booked. One of the defendants spent the night in jail because he didn't negotiate his bond agreement ahead of time. But he regrets that, or she. Heineken announced it's selling its business in Russia for just one euro the company is selling to the Russian manufacturer Arnest Group and will lose around $325 million. A Dutch brewer announced his plan to withdraw from the country last year after Moscow invaded Ukraine, but Heineken was slow to exit. The company said it was trying to look after local employees. And Starbucks confirms it's looking at scanless pay, which is a contactless checkout method. It can identify a Starbucks app user's current location when they're in the drive-through lane, the experience is currently being uh, tested with employees. Kelly, back to you. Scanless pay that can ID you in the drive-through. Cash is going away. <laughs> well, no, I've never paid with cash more because they charge you three percent everywhere if you want to use a credit card. Yeah, I don't know. A little bit of both. <laughs> See you in a half. See hour. you soon, Tyler. Thanks. Coming up, home ownership getting increasingly more unaffordable, with home prices high and the rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage firmly above seven percent. But Zillow Home Loan says there's a solution, and it's raising some eyebrows. We have those details next. Welcome back to The Exchange. If you've been one of the unfortunate ones in the hunt for a new home this year, you know just how bad the afford affordability crisis has become. As of last month, the median home price in America is over $406,000. And mortgage rates are at multi-decade highs, with a 30-year currently at 7.37%. That is making both down payments and monthly mortgage payments increasingly unaffordable. And now Zillow has a solution to that, launching a new program with just a 1% down payment option. But for buyers to qualify, they must have a credit score of at least 620, a steady income, 
and a low debt-to-income ratio. For more here, let's bring in Zillow Home Loan Senior Economist Orfe Divangui. Orfe, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. As an economist in particular, make the case for this program, Orfe. Look, Zillow Home Loans has been operating since uh, about 2018, uh, and this new product is a 2% grant to prospective buyers in Arizona. Uh, essentially, a borrower can put up to 3% down, and Zillow Home Loans will give them an additional 2%. Hmm. Uh, it's really for you know, it's for people that are you know, a small number of buyers who might be well-qualified, uh, with high enough credit scores, and who may already be paying the monthly payment and rent, uh, but lack access to a down payment. So doesn't FHA already offer 3% down payments, I believe? So, so could people qualify for that program? But do you think there's still a big difference between people who can afford a 3% down payment and the 1% that you guys are now offering through your subsidies? Look, you know, with rents increasing so much during the pandemic, look, the typical rent has gone up 30%. Uh, during the pandemic. And so rent increasing so much, basically, not only it takes longer to save up for a down payment, uh, but you know you have well-qualified, credit-worthy renters out there who may already be paying more on a monthly mortgage, uh, on rent, uh, than the monthly payment would be on that mortgage uh, without benefiting from the upside, right? The, the home ownership, the upside of home ownership. Uh, Zillow really wants to help with that. So uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, one of the reasons why we have things like the 20% traditional down payment is to make sure that homeowners have enough skin in the game that they don't just walk away from the house, right, and, and kind of put it back on the bank or on the lender. So it's really meant to protect you. Are you concerned that if people have a 1% down payment and then find that they can't make that mortgage payment, for instance, they're just going to walk away and it's going to become your problem or I guess whoever owns the loan at that point? Look, 40% of first-time homebuyers use gifts to purchase their home. And uh, historically, many first-time home buyers have had recourse to family funds. Uh, those with parents who own their homes or were able to extract home equity from their home are more likely to own. Uh, this is part of why the racial gap in home ownership is so wide. Uh, Zillow wants to be part of the solution. You know, essentially, you have a strong, you still have a strong labor market. The unemployment rate is really three is three point five percent right now. Home values are still rising. Mortgage delinquency rates are near an all-time low. And the credit scores of new home buyers are at the highest level uh, they've ever been. So, uh, you know, to, to, to emphasize, you know, the risk uh, to the financial system, I think is, a, is, a, is you know, is, is somewhat of a fool's errand. I think that, you know, the, the, the economy is strong. Mortgage rates are increasing because the consumer, consumer finances are still so strong. Uh, and I think this is a program that actually would help a small number of buyers. It's not for everyone. It's for those who... Uh, are already able to afford the monthly payment, but just don't have enough saved up for a down payment. Yeah, I have to imagine you remember well the 2007 crisis. You know, back then there was a similar move to make sure that, you know, housing was affordable enough and accessible enough for everybody, and then it backfired. How do we make sure this doesn't backfire this time around? Yeah, look, it's a tough affordability situation, but you look at the demand in the housing market, demand still exceeds supply, and homeowners are sitting comfortably here. Uh, you know, in the in the past decade, the, the typical uh, homeowner acquired 40 times more in net worth than the typical renter. Uh, and you have a lot of renters that are out there who are already paying more in, uh, in their rent than the monthly payment would be. So let me give you a concrete example. Take uh, the typical rent in Phoenix, for example. It's almost $2,000. 
a borrower putting 3% down, getting a 2% grant from Zillow Home Loans today at today's interest rates, who would be paying roughly $1,900, saving about $100 a month with the opportunity to build housing wealth, right? So this is really a small step in the right direction. It's one of the solutions, you know, for a small number of people uh, in Arizona today that may already be, you know, that are well-qualified, credit-worthy, and may already be paying a lot more than they, uh, they, they would pay under yeah. this program. Why Arizona to test this program, and, and by what criteria will it then be rolled out to more parts of the country? Look, there's a lot of very smart people at Zillow Home Loans that are working on this. But as an economist, I can tell you that for those paying higher rents that have not been able to save up enough for a down payment, this is an opportunity to get on the homeownership ladder and build home equity. Uh, it's really, really tough out there for renters. Uh, and unfortunately, many are already paying the, paying the price, but just not benefiting from the upside of home ownership. Orfe, it is the talk of the town, and we're so glad you could join us today to explain and defend it. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure to be on, on air. Orfe Divangui, senior economist with Zillow. Still ahead, after a few stutter steps, Instacart is now expected to file to go public within the next week. What that IPO could look like and the new sign of hope for grocery delivery companies is next. Before we head to break, let's also do some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. And shares of payment processor Shift 4 are down almost 19% in August, prompting two upgrades this week. Morgan Stanley today raising its target to equal weight, saying valuations are more attractive now. Raymond James moving it to outperform with a $74 price target earlier this week, partly on valuation, but also noting that Shift 4's wins since last year have come from less macro-dependent verticals. And CEO Jared Isaacman told us he's still seeing strength in the consumer when he joined us to discuss the company's earnings beat earlier this month. Our hotel and travel business going very strong, stadiums going strong, ticketing going strong. Restaurants, there's definitely a little moderation there. It's not the uh, euphoria of, of 2021 when everybody was reopening and things were going out of control, but people are still going out and eating, and drinking. And, um, you know, it's obviously still contributing very well to our volume growth. Welcome back. Marketing platform Clavio just filed to go public earlier this hour. Another little sign of life for the tech IPO space as we stay on the lookout for Instacart's filing today. Joining me to discuss Axios, Dan Primack, and our very own Deirdre Bosa. Welcome to both of you. Deirdre, anyway, we want to talk Instacart, but any significance on this, uh, this Clavio filing? I think there is, um, because if this was a company that was going public, it's a software company. Um, it helps marketers. It would be an impressive one. It would probably go public at or around or even above its last private market valuation of about $9.5 billion. I mean, for a software company, it looks good. Revenue growth rate of nearly 60%, net revenue retention rate of 119%. It's narrowing losses. But this is 2023, right? And we've seen a lot of the darlings of that IPO class of 2021 trade well below their peaks. So I think all of this, and this will be a good question for Instacart as well. Where's the valuation going to land here? Instacart, in its last private round, was valued at $39 billion. It has internally marked it down to about $13 billion. So when we see those financials, does that even justify a $13 billion valuation in this environment? That's key for these IPOs and anything that's in the pipeline that's going to be looking really closely at how investors receive these financials. And Dan, anything else you'd add? 
No, I, I think she got it right. I, I will say uh, with Clavio, one thing that's interesting, unlike Instacart, I think you have a lot of other companies in the pipeline who are going to look at Clavio and think a little bit, oh, we look a bit like them. Obviously, slightly different, different end users, et cetera. But Instacart is a little bit more of a standalone. You don't have a huge number of logistics delivery companies waiting. So, so I think Clavio... Instacart's the buzzier name, but I think Clavio might have a little bit more tailwind behind it. Ah, finally, one that gets Dan saying, hey, maybe we're getting back to the, uh, you know, normal. What is normal? I mean, we've gone from like a crazy boom to a to a winter tech winter, Deirdre. Tell me about the economics behind Instacart. Are they improving? Um, well, this is an interesting question. I'm dying to know. I want to dig into this S1 and look at these financials. Here's what we have heard. What we think we know is that this isn't your typical gig economy company. We know that the markets don't really like those. Uber and DoorDash are trading below their IPO prices. And investors are really asking, are these good, sustainable businesses? Um, the unit economics, they're improving, but these companies are still losing money. Instacart may be different in that it may be profitable and it has what we think is a substantial advertising business where the margins are a lot better. The company would probably like us to think of that as sort of its AWS the way that AWS is the profit engine for Amazon. It pays for all of their money-losing businesses like its core, e-commerce. We know that grocery delivery is not a great business in terms of profitability. Advertising is. So that dynamic is going to be really, really important here. And expectations are that it's going to make it look better than an Uber or DoorDash. Dan? Yeah, I think one of the big differences between, say, a DoorDash and Instacart, and again, Deidre's right, we need to see the S1, is that their average order size, their basket, as you will, is bigger, right? You know, even if you do a takeout for, you know, two or even four people, your grocery bill is probably bigger. And, and I think most of Instacart, Instacart will say kind of most of its orders are, they call it large basket. I think they say that's over $75. And my understanding, at least, is, is that the economics for them, the bigger the basket, the better that comes in profitability. So that's at least what they're probably going to argue is their big difference against some of their peers. Deirdre? Yeah, yeah, I would totally agree with that. That's something that you hear. And that's why Uber and DoorDash are moving into the grocery delivery business, because they want to get those bigger baskets. They want those better unit economics. But I would say we're talking about Uber and DoorDash. Those aren't the only players that we have to look out for. We need to look out for Walmart and Target, who are grocery behemoths that are doing their own grocery delivery as well. So a few years ago, Instacart was kind of the big name in this game. I mean, the big name in grocery delivery, but that's just not the case anymore. There has been so much more competition that has likely been eating away at its margins and certainly its dominance by some extremely well-capitalized players like a Walmart. I would love to know, Dan, I'm sure they don't disclose this granularity, but how much of the business is Costco? Because previous to Instacart, you couldn't shop at Costco without a membership card, but now you can. And even as a Costco member myself, their delivery service, which is a little cheaper, is, is still powered by Instacart. So that feels like an important part of the sustainable demand for it. Yeah, I, I don't know, obviously, what they're going to break out in the S1 in terms of customers, but they're not the only ones. You know, if you, for example, go to, you know, Publix.com or Wegmans.com to do a delivery order, that's also being powered by Instacart. So Instacart kind of, you know, there, there's the end user stuff that, you know, you can open up their app and order from various stores. But also, if you just go to a lot of stores directly, Instacart's still making the money off of that on the back end. And would you both say, I mean, Deirdre, last word to you, that this, you know, it felt like a week ago we were saying, ah, you know, arm schmarm, where's Instacart? And, and now here we are and here it comes. So I guess that means, you know, game on for the fall. Game on, certainly. I think it's going to be really important, though, the next few weeks as we actually see ARM and Instacart list. 
I mean, let me end by just pointing to a part of the listings market that is not doing very well, and that is SPACs. I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off of Better.com yesterday or today. This is a company, a venture-backed company, that was pushed out against the odds and, I mean, essentially crashed more than 90% yesterday. So I don't know that we are certain that these are going to go off well. Yeah. Um, so there's that to bring into it, but it will be important. These are obviously different businesses in different industries. Um, right. But all of it taken together, it's caution. I don't know that it's a you know, slam dunk. No, that that's the true. IPO window is going to open. Better.com is in like the worst possible part of the economy right now yeah. uh, in, in the mortgage business. But why did they has, go out? Right, I probably, I'm sure we had the CEO on Squawk Box yesterday, I think. And I, it was, you know, I think it was just uh, the, if the windows cracked open enough, they're going to they're going to walk through it. I guess, Dan, the quick final comment uh, on all of that would be, yep, it's bad taste in everyone's mouth from SPACs. As Bob Pisani said, maybe we need to price things a little conservatively um, to make sure that we don't have some high profile blow ups out the door here. I think that's true. I, one thing that's notable about Instacart, they've been wanting to go public for two years now, right? And they don't have a cash crunch, unlike how Better might have. Instacart didn't need the money per se. They've got a bunch on their books. So the fact that they're doing this basically means they're bankers, and granted, bankers are fee-generated optimists, but bankers are telling them this is the moment when the markets are finally ready for new issues. All right. Thank you both. Really enjoyed it. Dan Primack and Ardirtra Bosa. Still ahead, office real estate certainly remains under pressure, creating major headaches for landlords and investors. But could the loss of revenue also threaten local economies with a default on their debts? We will explore that next. Welcome back. Here on The Exchange, we've been exploring concerns over office real estate with everyone from high-profile developers to private equity investors to the REIT analysts. But what about the balance sheets of the states and cities where these hard-hit buildings are located and their municipal bondholders? My next guest says there could be an impact on munis down the line. Joining me now to discuss is Jennifer Johnston, director of muni bond research at Franklin Templeton. But Jennifer, to, to borrow a quote, you think we're not quite in the doom loop, doom loop phase yet, are we? Yes, that's correct. We just published a paper on this uh, earlier this week, and we really have dove deeply into this topic. If no other reason, we're in the Bay Area, and so we can see this every day in San Francisco. But we really came down to kind of three conclusions about what the impact is going to be on these issuers and on their bonds. So first, this is very regional, meaning that for every city that we're concerned about, there's another city that's thriving. So the benefit of having a strong research staff is we can go through and find those communities that are actually doing quite well and are not suffering from these problems. But when you think about direct impact, the real way that happens is through the payment of property taxes, which are distributed to cities, to school districts, those types of things. So the property taxes are based on the assessed value of the community. When you dig deeper, and I'll use San Francisco as an example, you can see that the tax base is massive. Office real estate specifically, commercial real estate more broadly, are just a fraction of the property taxes that are collected every year in San Francisco. It's the residential uh, residential real estate that really drives property taxes. So we think that if there is any kind of contraction, it's something the city of San Francisco can manage from a direct impact. So basically single digits, even for someone as hard hit as San Francisco. Is there any, well, or anywhere else that for whatever reason, maybe they have lower property taxes, a percentage or surprisingly high office, maybe it's more suburban or I mean, any, anywhere else that actually is a little bit more concerning? Sure. So that's what's actually interesting about it is it is so diverse. And they, the um, the way it comes out is really very unique. It can be the way your government is set up, 
uh, property taxes even a revenue source? For instance, the state does not collect property taxes. It impacts some of the state's spending around education, but states don't even capture property taxes. Um, and in some cases, they have very diverse revenue streams where you know they might receive property taxes, maybe local income taxes, sales taxes, excise taxes. So sometimes you have a very diverse revenue stream, which actually makes the impact of property taxes in general even smaller. So you really have to dig in deep and understand how this municipal you know, bond issuer is faring in terms of revenue diversity. Right. So are there any muni bonds out there? You know, I've been talking a lot about how uh, treasuries, you know, on the short end, long end, yields like you, you could never get. But it's not that tax efficient. You know, munis, they're, you know, a little more tax efficient or maybe tax adjusted yields are, are a little bit more worth it. So is there anywhere that maybe we've seen a sell off over these concerns, but you think the concerns are overblown and the munis might be a good investment? Correct. So two ways I'll answer that question. Number one is there's a bit of a time lag in terms of when these impacts, you know, we're hearing about sales happening of, you know, large buildings, but in terms of the impact on revenues, there's a delay there. Just basically how, you know, municipalities collect property taxes. Sometimes there's rules as to, you know, how that's all kind of um, phased in. So we think that there's a bit of a delay. So if there's ever going to be an impact, um, it's probably not right now. Um, we still have a lot of leases that you know, we're not going to see come to fruition until or expiration until 25, 26, 27, that sort of thing. Yeah. But back to the muni market specifically, um, this is a great time to be in munis. I mean, we say that every time. However, really now you, you're getting paid to be in fixed income. And so we think it's a great time to get in. And even as we approach maybe some of these challenges in some of these communities, you know, munis still have a, a higher credit quality than compared to our market, our corporate market partners. And um, also default rates are far less. Yeah. So you get a little bit better risk profile. And when you add in the after-tax benefit um, plus sort of where absolute yields are, it's a great time to be in the beauty market. All right. Maybe, maybe you've made the case. Now, we've got to come back, bring you back and talk about Hawaii, <clears throat> in particular, yep. some of the challenges that market is facing. That's so idiosyncratic. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today and for your context. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Jennifer Johnston with Fidelity. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Selling smoothies is what I do. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too. So he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.